Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. If you would, turn to John's Gospel in the 17th chapter. We are back in John's Gospel today, and what a great place to be. We are looking at part four in a series inside of the book of John entitled The True Lord's Prayer. I've made the point over and over again that what you see in Matthew's Gospel is not the Lord's Prayer. That is the Lord teaching disciples how to pray. Here, this is the true Lord's Prayer. This is actually when Jesus prays. And we have seen now three parts, and we will be looking at the fourth part of this today. As we examine the true Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. Get your Bibles handy. We are going to travel through a lot of Scripture. I could fill your time with pointless illustrations or stories. I could fill your time with needless jokes and humor. Do not seek to do that today. I'll fill your time today, the Lord's time, because this is His day, with the truth that the Scriptures contain in each subject that we are going to look at today in regard to the true Lord's Prayer. And it amazes me every time that I get to this passage in John, whether I preach from it or whether I'm just studying it on my own, whether I'm in a devotion time and I get to these verses. Every time I get here, it blows me away that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, on His way to the cross, this is just hours before the cross, this is just moments Moments before he is betrayed with a kiss and arrested. He thought need to pray for me. And to pray for all who would believe the message of those who were his there on the earth at that time. So the question is not, is Jesus praying here? For those who would believe, that's an obvious question. Yes. He's praying for all of those throughout time, the universal church throughout history, who would believe the message that he gave to the apostles that the apostles preached throughout the world. You here who are believers, you are here because of the apostles' preaching. Don't forget that. So it is true that if you were in Christ this morning, Jesus prayed for you just prior to going to the cross to die for you. That's not our question today. Our question today is this. Not did Jesus pray for the believers, but did Jesus pray for you? Did he pray for you? Is he specifically praying for you in this text? Is he praying for you? Are you in Christ? That's the question that you need to answer this morning. The good news is this, Jesus gives you all the elements that you need to answer this question in this text. Some things in your life this morning that you need to examine and you can verify whether or not Jesus is praying for you. I can tell you this, as far as I am concerned, that day in that garden, 
just outside of where he would be betrayed, Jesus prayed for this wretched scoundrel, Kirk Hall. And I know that because of the evidence that he's going to give today. My prayer is this, that you can know the same thing and that you will know the same thing. That yes, Jesus did pray for me. But perhaps you come to this conclusion at the end of this message. No, I don't have any of those evidences. I pray today that God would graciously save you, granting faith to you and repentance to you, and by His grace, drawing you out of darkness and into light so that you will believe today and you can walk out these doors saying 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ prayed for this day that I would truly know Him through the message that His followers preached. John chapter 17, we need not delay. John 17, verse 20, it says this, My prayer is not for them alone. He was talking, we know, in our last John message, he was talking about his disciples that were there on the earth with him at that time. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, and may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them." In this prayer, Jesus is going to pray specifically for those who will believe. And if you are in Christ, again, He is praying for you. But we must, must look at the evidences that He is giving here of true faith, a true believer, those who He was really praying for. And the things that Jesus was praying for will be evident in the lives of those who are truly saved. And so you must ask yourself, that question, was he praying for you? Here's what Jesus was praying. Jesus was praying that, number one, you will believe the true gospel. If you want to know if Jesus was truly praying for you, he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You will believe the true gospel. Jesus prayed for it here, for all of those who would believe the message of the apostles, those who will believe that message. The interesting thing is, is that message is so convoluted and so hazy, so watered down in our time, we must revisit the scriptures to know exactly what is the message that the apostles preached. What is the message that was handed down to them from, from Christ? And have you believed that message? Can I tell you something this morning? If you have believed any other message, 
That is not the biblical message of the gospel. I am not afraid to say this to you. You are not truly saved. There are many people believing false gospels, having false assurance, who will spend an eternity in hell. Jesus is praying specifically for those who will believe through the message of the apostles. In fact, Galatians, Paul warns the church with this strong warning. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's warning of different gospels. That's why if we're going to answer the question today, have I believed the true gospel, we need to know what the true gospel is. He says in verse 7 of Galatians 1, which is really no gospel at all, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That's for the Mormons who want to believe that they have the gospel, the new gospel from the angel Moroni. That's false. That's what Paul's warning about. He's saying that there's a gospel preached other than what we preached. It's not the true gospel. Verse 9 says, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned, anathema. Let him be cut off. Paul made it very clear that there is the danger of the false gospels out there. If Jesus is praying for you here in John chapter 17, you will believe the true gospel. He is praying for those who will believe the true gospel of the apostles. What is it? Number one, write it down. It is a gospel of grace. It is a gospel of grace. This is their message. And the apostles preached this gospel of grace clearly. It is salvation by a monergistic work of God. It is a gift from God to you, the sinner. You cannot earn it on your own. You cannot purchase it by your good works. You cannot gain this other than by grace alone. It is a gospel of grace. In fact, when Paul wrote to Galatia, he was writing to them because there were people who were throwing them into confusion, adding works to grace. You cannot add works to grace and still have the accurate gospel that the apostles preached. It is grace alone. The apostles preached this gospel. And I want to read a lot of scripture for you, so get ready. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. It says this, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul said it is a gospel of God's grace. Galatians, Paul says this, chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If it's not a gospel of grace, then why did Christ have to come and die? If we could somehow attain it by our own good deeds or through the law, the death of Christ would be pointless. Paul is making that statement here. Ephesians chapter 2, in a passage that you all know, turn over there, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. It says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Yes, I was. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us, every single one of us, also lived among them at one time, dead and dead in our sins. Don't miss that. 
gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. All of us, dead in our sin, sinners by nature, objects of God's wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Who did it? God. Not you. Not your grandmother. Not your pastor. God. It is grace. This is a gospel of grace. In fact, he says it next. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace and expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Were it not for the gracious kindness of the Lord our God, we would all suffer the wrath of God for eternity. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The message that Jesus was praying that the true believer would believe is the message of the gospel of grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, I warned you, I told you we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I know many of you are thinking, this, this is elementary school Christianity. Oh, how often we forget grace. How important we forget that it is a gospel of grace. How, how many times have we found ourselves trying to earn or to keep salvation some way by our own efforts or our own performance? May it not be so. The gospel that the apostles preached is a gospel of grace. Romans chapter 5. Again, Paul talking about this subject. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. He's talking about the gift of salvation, God's grace. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, talking about Adam, verse 15, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That's for all the people who don't want to believe that when Adam fell, all of mankind fell. There it is. They all fell. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It is a gospel of grace. Romans 11 he says this in verse 5, it's so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. There's a remnant that is chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. No catchy points to teach you the fact that it is a gospel of grace. The Scripture speaks for itself. It is a gospel of grace. Secondly, not only is it a gospel of grace that the apostles preached, 
that true believers hear is the gospel of faith. The apostles preached a clear gospel of grace and a clear gospel of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, just as the prophet said that he would. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says that's first importance. Our faith rests in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to understand is when we talk about faith, we are not just talking about intellectual head knowledge that, that just recognizes an historical Jesus. We are talking about what the Bible calls pistuo, and pistuo is an abandonment of one's self and trusting in something outside of you. And in this case, it is trusting someone outside of you. It is trusting in Christ and Christ alone, his death, his burial, and his resurrection as the only hope that you have of salvation. It is a gospel of faith that they preached. Why is it important that we understand this? Because the gospel has been so distorted in our time that it's not even clear what the true gospel is, so we must return to the Scriptures. John 1 Verse 12, what does he say there? He says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. What does that mean? They trusted in his name. Does that just mean they, they saw the name Jesus and said that's a pretty good name? No, they trusted in everything that he said that he was and everything that he said he was going to accomplish and everything that he did accomplish through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He says, everyone who believes in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Notice, he gave the right. There's grace again mingled with faith. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You're born of God through the faith that he has given you to trust in the name of Jesus, his finished work, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You must believe. It is by faith that we access the promise of salvation from God's word, and it is faith in Christ. It's not faith in a church. It's not faith in your baptism. It's not faith in any good deed that you've ever done. It's not faith in the fact that you came in here today. But it is faith in the finished work of Calvary. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, watch this, Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. He's saying every one of you who have faith in Christ have been forgiven and washed completely clean of all of your defilements and sins. 
And it's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in the fact that he is who he said that he is and that he came to do what he said that he came to do and that he went to the place that he said that he was going after he rose from the grave and he is there seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he is forever making intercession for those who he's praying for here. Oh, his prayer didn't stop outside the garden. His prayer is continual for those who are really in Christ. Are you? Is he praying for you here that you would receive a gospel of grace, a gospel of faith? Romans 10, a familiar passage for most of you. Verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, I want to stop you for a second. He says you will be saved. You have to believe in your heart, but we saw in Ephesians that man's heart, and that is the depth of your soul, is dead. How can you believe in your heart if God doesn't first do a work of grace, and he does, and he does that work of grace, and it's what Ezekiel said when he said he was going to exchange that heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Now in our inmost being, those of us who have been regenerated by the sovereign power of God, we can now in our heart believe that God raised him from the dead. You ask me that question. Do you really believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? More than I believe that I'm standing here today. I believe that. Why? Because God has done an internal work in me so that I can believe. And why does he want me to believe? Because Jesus prayed that I would believe. And I do believe because he prayed for me there just prior to his crucifixion. He says, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. We are justified by faith in Christ. The apostles make that very clear in all of their teaching that it is a gospel of faith. Galatians 2.16 says this, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, that's plain and simple, isn't it? That there's no law, not the law of God or a law that you create for yourself or some kind of religion that creates a law for you. There is no law that is going to allow you to be justified by and before a holy God. It is Christ and Christ alone. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. No one. Why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've already made that very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after him. You can't live a life of righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness for those of us who have by faith trusted in him. It is the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith. And the next... This is a very difficult one in our day and time because no one wants to hear it. It is a gospel of repentance. It is a gospel of repentance. The apostles preach this gospel of repentance. Jesus himself preached this gospel of repentance. It is turning from unbelief to faith in Christ and turning from sin to righteousness. That's what repentance is. So many people want salvation. They want to hold on to their old life. When Jesus prayed that we would believe the gospel that was handed down to his apostles, he was praying that we would believe the gospel of repentance. 
where's repentance in the American church? No, it's get Jesus, get your free ticket to heaven, and then live any way that you want to live, and and nobody's really even going to worry about it. However, that's not the gospel of the Scriptures. That is a false gospel. Have you ever noticed in so many realms they do the ABCs of Christianity and they never include the R, which is repentance? You can't find it anywhere. Why is there not an R thrown in there somewhere? Because if I look at the Scriptures clearly and plainly, I see this. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus preached faith and repentance. Look at Mark 1, 15. He says, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Watch what Jesus preached. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. You say, well, I've tried on my own and I just can't turn from my old life of sin because repentance is a God-wrought thing. It's not a man-wrought thing. Jesus is praying that they would believe the true gospel and the true gospel includes repentance. And I believe this, those he's praying for, repent. They turn from their unbelief, they turn from their sin, they turn to Christ as their only hope. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Luke 5, 32. And let me remind you of this. A gospel that doesn't call sinners to repentance is not the true gospel. Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, I'm so thankful for those words. Because this sinner needed to repent. And he called me to repentance. If you claim to have that effectual call on your life, it will produce effect. And what is that effect? It is repentance. It is turning from the old life of sin and turning to Christ and Christ alone as your righteousness. It is a gospel of repentance. Oh, in our time these days, you get in so much trouble for preaching this type of thing, but isn't it here in the Scripture so plain and so clear? Acts chapter 3, verse 19 The message that's being preached here in the early church was this. Watch. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Do you think the apostles preached the gospel of repentance? I'm not done yet. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, as Paul says, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Folks, faith and repentance go hand in hand. One is not mandatory and the other optional. They are both part of God's plan of salvation. You will believe and you will repent, or you will repent and you will believe, but either way, faith and repentance will happen in your life. Have you repented of your sin? Or do you wonder if Jesus was praying for you in the garden? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to Christ? Acts 26, verse 20, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preach, here's Paul preaching again, that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Well, that's lost in modern day so-called Christianity with a watered down gospel that doesn't include repentance that leads to acts of righteousness. It's a gospel of repentance. We know what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Why? You've turned from the old creation under the power of God, and you've been made new in Christ. Jesus was praying that you will believe the true gospel. Secondly, we must hurry. Jesus was praying that 
you will have unity in the body. Unity in the body, verse 21. Watch what Jesus prays here, that all of them, the all of them that he's talking about is believers of all time throughout history, from the apostles all the way to right now in 2023, all of us who are sitting here today who are believers and are in Christ. He says that all of them may be, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Look at the analogy that he uses there. He uses the union of the Father and the Son. He goes to the Trinity for his analogy here. And he says, just as we are one, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's talk about this unity because Jesus was praying that you will have unity in the body, that there will be unity in the body. I'm not talking about ecumenicalism. I'm not talking about just getting along for the sake of getting along. I'm not talking about embracing Catholicism and all of their heresies. I'm not talking about embracing outside religions. I'm not talking about embracing any false teachers or heretics. Jesus is not talking about that either. This is speaking of unity within the true body of Christ. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. There is oneness in the body of Christ, and that oneness is because the Father and the Son are one, and we are in the Son, and because we are in the Son, we are in the Father. This is the oneness, the unity that Jeremiah Way back in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 32, verse 39, he prophesied of this. And he says this in Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. And then we see in Acts chapter 4, when this comes to fruition, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says all the believers were one heart, and one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. They were in unity. Just as the Father and the Son share in eternal glory, that's the illustration that he's using. The church shared all of their possessions. They were one of heart. They were one in mission. Jesus used this illustration to teach us something, that the true believers, the true body of Christ, because we know there are so many groups and sects that call themselves the body of Christ who are not the body of Christ at all. He's talking here about those Jesus was truly praying for, that they will be one in position. Look at that. We're not jockeying for position here as believers. We are all parts of the one body. And just as the Father and the Son agree in oneness, Jesus prays here that the believers would do the same. This is why it's important that we study the Word of God, that we devote ourselves to sound doctrine and sound theology so that we can be on the same page, not with each other, so that we can be on the same page with the Father and with the Son so that we can agree in oneness. He speaks of our 
unity in position, oneness in his church. He mentions the union with the Father through the Son. We're unified with the Father through the Son. Did you know this? Before the Son atoned for your sins, you could not have a right relationship with your Creator. You were alienated. You were cut off. Ephesians says you were without hope and without God. You didn't have a relationship to God. If you're here today and you're in this liberal idea of thinking that we're all just children of God. No, you aren't. No, you weren't. You're children of sin. You were children of Satan. There was a union that took place in Christ. John speaks of this in his first epistle. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you that... We, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship, watch where the fellowship of the church is. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. One in position with the Father and the Son. A holy union. And Jesus uses the eternal essence and glory of His triunity to describe for us how one we are with the Father, just as He is one with the Father, one in our position, this union, established and confirmed, of course, by the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you don't have to wonder. The Spirit testifies internally that you are in Christ. This is the unity of the Spirit that Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of in verse 3. What a picture for us. The unity of the Spirit, that the indwelling Holy Spirit continually reminds us, continually confirms to us that we are in our position. Watch this. Unified in Christ and unified with the Father because we are in Christ. That is amazing. That is amazing that someone like myself, perhaps maybe, you don't realize this yet, I was once an enemy of God, cut off. Now not only am I a friend, I am included in complete unity. I am as close to God as Christ because it is Christ who has made me near. Oh, when people come to me and say, I'm a believer and I know that, but I feel so far away from God. Stop going on your feelings. The Word of God says that you've been made one with Him in Christ. You're His child. You're never going to be anything less. Thank you, Jesus. One in our position. This union is established and confirmed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We see that at Pentecost. They became one in their position. The Spirit confirms that. This union is also confirmed through our sanctification. Remember back in verse 17 where he was praying for the other disciples, which included us as well, because he said, I'm not just praying for them. I'm also praying for this other group. He prayed in 17, 17 that you would sanctify them by truth, and then he said, your word is truth. This union is confirmed by sanctification. How do I know if I'm really unified with Christ? Well, you understand positional sanctification. And to understand positional sanctification, you have to go to the Word of God and you have to know this, that I have been included 
in a relationship with the Father, set apart for that relationship. That's what sanctification means. Through the sacrifice of the Son, according to the will of God before the foundations of the earth. I have been set apart positionally. That is my positional sanctification as a true believer. But not only is my positional sanctification a confirmation of my union with the Father and with the Son, also my practical sanctification is confirmation of that. That continual work in my life, practical sanctification, where I am becoming one with my standing in the state that I live in. That is me becoming more like Christ. That is you, if you were in Christ, becoming more like Christ. Why? Why is that so important? Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You want to know if you have this union with the Father through the Son? Does your life say that you do? Is there proof there? Is there evidence there will be? Your positional sanctification will lead to practical sanctification because you're one in position. Not only are you one in position as he prayed for here, as he prayed that you would have unity in the body, one in purpose. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Oneness in glory. Whose glory are you living for? One purpose. And what is the purpose? Our purpose in the church as the true body of Christ is to bring glory to God. We won't go back and talk about all the confessions that state that, but that is our chief end, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. This is the purpose of the church, to bring God glory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus makes this simple. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He gives them this big illustration about no one lights a candle and puts a bushel basket over the top of it. They take it off so everyone can see it. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men. Why? So that they would glorify your Father in heaven. Not so they would say what a good dude you really are, a good gal you really are. Because you're not, be honest with yourself. He is a glorious God and he deserves all honor and glory. One in purpose is what he's praying that we would be as he's praying for unity and oneness in the church. That we will bring God glory through the glory of Christ living in and through us. John 15, if you remember back when we were there, Jesus said something very interesting that many times people read over it and they pass by it. John 15, verse 5, Jesus explains to them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Then he goes down in the latter part of that verse and he says this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot bear one fruit of righteousness apart from Jesus Christ that will bring glory to God. And bringing glory to God is our one purpose. That is what redemption is all about. He has redeemed sinners so that he can receive glory for it. That's why the reformers stick to the term and those of us who have followed in their footsteps solely Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. May this be our purpose as believers. No other purpose in our heart but the glory of God. The glory that Christ said he has given him. He's given it to us. That glory is to be on display so that others will see our Father and praise Him and turn from their sin and turn to Him as we preach the glorious message of the gospel. 
one in position, one in purpose, and then lastly in this section, one in passion. One in passion, verse 23. Die in them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? What is the purpose of this unity? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Complete unity in order to let the world know that you sent me. This is our one passion. Our passion is to make Christ known. That is the passion of the true believer. The gospel. Our one passion to tell others about the Savior who rescued us and how He can rescue them as well. This passion should be all of our motivation. All of it. Why? Because Jesus told them in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, He said to them, Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. We have a mandate in regard to passion. This should be our passion, to make Christ known. You say, well, I, I think I'm a believer, but I have no passion to make Christ known. You don't get it yet. A true believer will make Christ known. Why? Because the glory that the Father gave Him, He gave to us, and we are to make Him known if He is truly praying for you here in John chapter 17. Is he? Because he's praying that we would make him known. That would be our passion. The true body of Christ will be unified in this passion. A church which has no passion for preaching the gospel is no church at all. It's a civic organization. It's a club. It's a secret society. You might as well go ahead and make some secret handshake and leave all the outsiders out. You've lost your true passion, your passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just as the Father and the Son were one in position and purpose and passion, so true believers will follow suit. Why? Because either Jesus prayed the will of the Father or He prayed contrary to what He taught His disciples to pray. I have a hard time believing that since everything about Him was perfect, even His prayers. And Jesus prayed that this would be the anthem of the church. Unity. Oh, you can look at all of the early church fathers. You can look at all of their writings. And one common theme that you will find in all of them is unity in the body of Christ. Unity in our position that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are in God. We are one with the Father. And we are one with the Son. Our purpose, our purpose is to glorify God on this earth. And our passion is to share the gospel and to make Him known. Jesus was praying that you will have unity in the body as you praying for you there. Thirdly, Jesus was praying that you will have the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 24. That you would have the hope of eternal life. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Well, the glory that we see of Christ now is a limited glory. We have only seen His glory veiled in His humanity as He became the incarnate one. But we know this. He is returning to the Father, just as He has said in John's Gospel, to His full glory. The glory that He departed from when He came to this earth. He left that glory to put on humanity and He lowered Himself just as Philippians chapter 2 says. He humbled Himself and He humbled Himself to death and death on a cross and He became a servant. That glory has always been His and it will remain His for all eternity because He shares in that glory with the Father and He was going back to the Father. 
He speaks of that glory here. And speaking of that glory, he reminds us that we have hope in eternal life because of that glory. True believers have the internal hope of eternal life in Christ. And that consists of some things. Back first John chapter 5, verse 11, it says, And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. We find true eternal life in Christ and in Christ alone. And in finding eternal life, here's what we receive. According to what Jesus just said here in verse 24 of John chapter 17, if he's praying for you, these things belong to you. Pay attention to it. A forever home. A forever home. A believer knows internally that he or she will dwell with God forever. You will dwell with God forever. Why? Because Jesus has promised you eternal life. He's not made one promise that will not come to pass. He's promised that if you truly believe in him, if I'm talking to those who he's praying for here, if you are truly in Christ, you have a forever home, and it is in a special place. In fact, John chapter 14 tells us of that special place. You remember that when we were there? He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Did you know this? In the Father's house, there is a room with the true believer's name on the door. I'm symbolically speaking, but we know this. He's promised us a room. And that room is for those who he is praying for in John chapter 17. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I'm not lying to you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way to the place where he's going. He said it very clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is a special place that has been prepared for all of those who have eternal life in Christ. It is a special place, and it is in his sovereign presence. Revelation chapter 21, those men who were in our study on Thursday night, this is going to be relatively familiar to you because this is where we are in our study, but 21.2 says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things passed away and in the sovereign presence of God for all eternity. That is what we have been promised in Christ. Revelation 22, 4 takes it a step further. It says this, they will see his face. And his name will be on their forehead. See his face. Remember when Moses asked to see the Lord's face? The Lord said, you can't see my face and live. No one can bear my full glory. Not in the condition that you're in. So he hid him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by. And we know this, that Moses came down from the mountain shining with the glory of God. Just in that little pass by in the cleft of the rock. Revelation 22 there in the end says this. Those of us who are really in Christ will see him face to face. Did you know the new Jerusalem as described will shine with the glory of God Almighty and with the Lamb for all eternity? Oh, that is our forever home. How we should long for that. If you're in Christ, you do long for that. Your forever home. Because eternal life says that this is not my home. 
My citizenship is in a land that is far away that God has prepared for me in Christ. Forever home, but a forever glory. You will have the hope of eternal life, that forever home and a forever glory. We will forever experience the glory of Christ. Christ's glory seen, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Can you imagine that day? And you see the full, unadulterated glory of Christ for the first time. No man has seen it and lived. We will see it for the first time. What a day that will be. Is he praying for you? Do you have eternal life here in John 17? Is he praying for you? Do you have the hope of seeing Christ's glory? Not only will his glory be seen, watch this. His glory will be shared for all eternity. Romans chapter 8. It says this in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Wait a second, Kirk, you're telling me that a once wretched sinner condemned, destined for hell because of my unbelief, rebellious toward God and blasphemous in my very nature, you mean to tell me that because of what Christ did for me on that tree, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, you mean to tell me that I can have and you have the hope of eternal life? Yeah, not only that, I am going to share in the glory of Christ. You say, Kirk, what does that mean? I have no idea. I'm not going to be the preacher who tries to tell you what the glory of Christ is. I absolutely, positively have no idea to the magnitude of something that no one has ever seen. I would be a fool to try to explain that to you. But I can tell you this. He promises that we will share in that glory. He promises that we will see that glory and that we will share in that glory forever. Oh, what a day that will be if you are a believer here. Jesus is praying that you will have the hope of eternal life, that something inside of you at this moment is welling up saying, yeah, I don't know what the glory of Christ really is to its full degree, but I'm going to share in that. Why? Because the Word of God promises that I will. It's forever glory. And then we see this in regard to eternal life, forever home and forever glory and forever fellowship with God. Forever fellowship with God. It is forever because it's not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Christ and the work that he did at the cross. It is based on his effort, his merit. Not only is it based on his effort and his merit, but it is also based on God's eternal love for the Son. Pay attention to this. 24 says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Show them your glory through me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, gives us some insight into this. When Jesus was being baptized, a voice from heaven said this, and we know that was the Father, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What is this saying? It's saying that it is because of the Father's eternal love for the Son that assures us 
of the Father's eternal love for us. Every ounce of love that you receive from God personally, I'm not talking about general benevolence of God. I'm talking about intimate love from God. Every ounce that you receive trickles down from the love that he had for Christ in eternity past, always has had the love, always will have the love for the Son. Why is that important? Because the Father's never going to cease in his love for the Son. Therefore, he's never going to cease his love for those who have been adopted and included in the Son. All of our eternal fellowship, all of our blessing, eternal life, and love from the Father stems from the flow of God's love for His Son. John 3.35, He said, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. You want to see the love of God? Look to the Son. Romans 5.8, God commends His demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, all love that we have from God trickles from the Son. Jesus is praying this here, John 17. He says, The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Why do we get to share in his glory? Why do we get to experience eternal life? Oh, don't be so self-centered, American church. It's not because God loved you, though he does, but he loves you in Christ. It is because of the Father's love for the Son. He has given him a possession. Who is that possession? It is his bride, the body, the true believers. It is made up of those who he promised us in John, where he said, all that the Father gives me will come unto me. Have you come unto him? Is he praying for you here today in this prayer? Are you truly in Christ. Lastly, and I will move as quickly as possible. Jesus was now, in the last two verses, praying that you will receive the Lord's indwelling promises. He says in verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. These promises are written in God's Word. They are verified by the Holy Spirit living in us. If you're in Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the indwelling Holy Spirit does some things for us. Aren't you thankful? He confirms in the depths of our redeemed souls that God's promises are true. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 1 and it's verse 20. It says that for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. We can count on them if we are in Christ. And in these verses here, as Jesus is praying, he is specifically praying that we would rest in the indwelling promises. The first one is this. Pay attention to it. A confidence of knowing God. He says, I have made you known to them. How do we know God? Through Christ. And if you think you know God and you don't know God through Christ, you don't know the one true God. It is through Christ that we know God. He says, I have made you known to them. We who are in Christ 
have this confidence that we know God and that we are known by God because Jesus has made Him known. Has He made God known to you? Is He praying for you in John chapter 17? God will be known to you. You will have confidence that you are a child of God, that you are known by God, and that you have an intimate relationship with God the Father. He makes this very clear. He will give you that confidence. Christ continually makes that known. He makes that known at salvation, and he continually makes that known through his Holy Spirit and through his word as we read his word. And we can have confidence of knowing God. In fact, we can have confidence of approaching his throne of grace. What a privilege. Jesus is praying that the believers would understand that confidence to approach the throne of grace in your time of need. Oh, isn't it a privilege, child of God, when you get to approach the throne of grace in your time of need? Oh, you don't have to approach the throne as some bashful outsider. You approach the throne as a son. You approach your heavenly Father. Why? Because of the confidence that you have in knowing God through Jesus Christ. He said, I've made you known to them. Not only the confidence of knowing God, but the continual love of the Father. Oh, don't we have the continual love of the Father? Oh, I'm so thankful for how he reminds us of his continual love. First John chapter 3, John says it like this, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. How great is that love? You know what he was saying? I'm, I'm blown away at the magnitude of that kind of love, how great it is that he would love us the way that he does as children. That continual love of the Father is being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit constantly. Well, how many times has the enemy told you that you're unlovable? How many times has your own flesh told you you're unlovable? Yet only to know what the Word of God says in the indwelling Holy Spirit testifies to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Oh, so many times in my life I have thought to myself, surely God no longer loves this scoundrel. Only to have the Holy Spirit pour His love into my heart, giving me confidence, not in Kirk Hall, but confidence in the promise of God's continual love that is being poured into our hearts through His Holy Spirit. This was promised by Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, and my Father will love him. He will come to him and make, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, I'm thankful that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, somehow, you say, explain it to me, I can't. Somehow the Father and the Son reside in me through the Holy Spirit, pouring out their love into my heart constantly. Do you have that hope? Was Jesus praying for you here? If, if you're truly one of those, he's praying for you. You have that hope? You say, well, I don't know if I have that hope. I can't make sense of that. Don't try to make sense of it. Just rest in it. You have that continual love being poured out into you. The love that the Father has eternally held for the Son being extended to you through the Holy Spirit. You live and you walk in Him. Wow. It's a continual love of the Father. It's a constant presence of Christ. A constant presence of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, 
Verse 20, he promised his disciples this. He said, in teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He's given them the great commission. He says, teach them to do everything I've said. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Aren't you thankful that he is with us always? Christ is constantly with us to the end of the age. Why? Because of his indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers at Pentecost, just as he told the disciples in his day, I'm going away, but I'm going to be in you. And he is. It confirms our faith. Aren't you thankful for the indwelling Christ who confirms our faith? If you want to know if you're truly saved, look inside. Look inside. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says this. Examine yourselves, verse 5, to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Is he? Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? A true believer will have Christ Jesus in them. Was he praying for you here in John chapter 17? Is Christ in you? Hope of glory living inside of you? Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You could fail the test. You could fail the test and Christ not living in you at all. And you have to come to this conclusion. No, Jesus is not praying for me in John chapter 17 here. Oh, Jesus is praying for those who would believe, but I have not yet believed. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Repent of your sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ this very day as God opens your eyes to see the truth of your need for a Savior, that you are a sinner. You are cut off from a holy God, and you need redemption. And only He died so that you could be redeemed on a cross, bearing the wrath of God and bearing the shame of your sin. He, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to new life so that you can receive new life this very day. Call on the name of Christ to save you. Experience these indwelling promises, the confidence of knowing God, the continual love of the Father, the constant presence of Christ, the constant presence of Christ confirming our faith and conforming us to the image of Christ himself, conforming us to his image. Isn't that the will of the Father for all of those who are truly in Christ? That they be conformed to the image of His Son? Oh, who better to conform you than the indwelling Christ? Is He conforming you to His own image? Or do you find yourself realizing in the moment of temptation, no, I can't do that because that's not what Jesus Christ would do. I don't want to take upon myself anything that sent Him to the cross and anything that pierced His hands and His feet. I don't want to participate in those things. If Christ is in you, you will find yourself saying that a lot. But is he in you? If he's praying for you here in John chapter 17, he will be in you, constant and present. So let's wrap this up. We started with a question, we'll end with it. Was Jesus praying for you? Was he? Have you truly believed the true gospel? Not the comfortable gospel, not the Americanized gospel. The gospel of grace and the gospel of faith and the gospel of repentance. The, the gospel that the apostles preached, that Jesus handed down to them to preach. Have you by faith trusted in that message that points us to that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you unified, one, with the Father and the Son in your position and your purpose and your passion as the body of Christ? The body of Christ will not be divided from the position, purpose, and passion of the Father and the Son. They will all share in the same position, purpose, and passion. You share in that. Do you have 
the internal hope of the eternal life that Jesus promises to those who really believe. Do you have those in, internal indwelling promises from the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, bringing confidence, knowing God, having confidence of the continual love of the Father and the constant presence of Christ in your life? Are you truly in Christ? If you're truly in Christ, you will have all of this. How do I know that? Because Jesus prayed for it. And if you are truly in Christ, everything that we have looked at today, you said yes, yes because of Christ, yes because of Christ, yes because of Christ, yes because of Christ, yes because of Christ. But if you're not in Christ today, you've had to come to the conclusion, no, Jesus was not praying for me that day. But perhaps this day, you would open your eyes and change your life. You would repent of your sin and you would trust in Jesus Christ. And though you walked in, and though you heard this message, and though at the end of the message you say, no, he wasn't praying for me, I'm not in Christ, I've never truly surrendered to him as my Lord and Savior. Perhaps that's how you came in today. My prayer for you is that that's not how you leave. I pray that you leave saying, you know, I didn't realize that Jesus was praying for me that day. But he has opened my eyes to the truth that I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. And I have cried out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he has forgiven me and he has cleansed me of all of my sin. And he has granted to me eternal life just as he has promised. And leave here today saying, yes, 2,000 years ago in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 25, Jesus Christ himself prayed that I would be saved this day. And I was. All glory to God. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you so much for your word. It has been put out there. And Lord, that is all I can do. Now I depend upon your Holy Spirit to quicken dead sinners to life, to bring them to faith and repentance as only you can, drawing them unto yourself out of darkness into your marvelous light, saving the wretched sinner as you once saved me. But I pray today for the Christian here that they would rejoice in having the assurance that they are who they are in Christ because you yourself prayed for them 2,000 years ago just prior to your crucifixion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for me, knowing everything that you would have to rescue me from. You prayed for me. And because of that, I'm here today with the hope of salvation. Thank you, Lord. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website, at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.